And if you think about kind of the trust world has evolved heavily from almost a fiduciary experience into kind of investment management or agency accounts. And the broker dealer world has evolved from this transactional brokerage environment to advisory. It's a convergence of fee-based advice. When I think about this journey, I really break it into three buckets. There's culture, there's regulatory, and then technology. Probably the biggest barrier right now is cultural. Common leadership, for-profit banking, trust, and brokerage, having the leadership aligned was important. So then we started talking about a vision. Vision is part of culture and, and what we wanted to be. So in a banking organization, we don't ever see a time that you shouldn't at least have a team of someone in banking that goes along with your advisor. Compensation models can be aligned, right? We can figure that out. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Staffus Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series. This series focuses on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives. And now I'll turn it over to our hosts, Scott Stathis and Bob Mattel. Hello, I am Scott Stathis, and welcome to this episode of Industry Leadership and Success called The Convergence of Investments, Trust, and Private Banking. So in this episode, we will discuss the journey to One Wealth, and the related topics of teamwork, the client experience, compensation, technology, and a host of best practices. So we have the perfect guests to discuss that with. So let me pass it to Bob to introduce himself, make a few comments, and then have our guests introduce themselves. Bob? Well, thanks a lot, Scott. I am Bob Mattel with Status Mattel. And let me add my welcome as well. The Convergence of Investments, Trust, and Private Banking all about wealth management. It's a lot to cover, so let's start off by meeting our panel. We have Rebecca Robinson from Zions Bank Corporation. Welcome, Rebecca. Glad to be here. And we have Rome's R from First Horizon. Good afternoon, and thank you for uh, the opportunity. And we have Chris Cassidy from LPL, our sponsoring partner. Thanks, Bob. Pleasure to be here. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's get into the questions. Yep, I have a question for you guys. I, I do want to uh, just once again acknowledge LPL and, th and thank you guys for uh, for supporting and sponsoring this and bringing these guests together. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And let's start with the big picture. So there's been a lot of talk about one wealth in the industry, a lot of banks and credit unions that are renaming their investment program to wealth management. We've talked before in these podcasts how in often cases that's just window dressing. It's not reality but not always, right? So you guys on the panel have seen the reality of what One Wealth can look like and are working on that. So let's talk about that. So, so you know, our view is that One Wealth is a logical progression of our offerings, especially if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, what happens if we can, if we can work across departments as a one purpose, one team, and the the wealth of services, experiences we can bring to our clients, especially from the perspective of servicing as many of their needs as possible. In a perfect world, the teammates uh, will of the institution will be striving to to serve as many of those needs as possible. But there's a lot of challenges, right? So, give us your perspective on that journey, the challenges, how it's coming together, and and what you're doing in your institutions to make that one wealth vision a reality. Rebecca, you want to start off for us? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Uh, when I think about this journey, I really break it into three buckets. There's culture, 
there's regulatory and then technology. And I think we can spend a lot of time really focused on the regulatory piece or technology and how those aren't married up. But I, I really think probably the biggest barrier right now is cultural. And I think that that's actually a really good thing for us because we own culture and we own a lot of the decisions that are made around that. So as I look at this One Wealth journey, if we step back from our own constructs, all of the things that we think block us and ask ourselves what our clients want, I think clients don't really understand all of these other components. They want advice. They want someone who rides with them throughout their financial life. And if that becomes more complex, uh, they would like that. They'd like to make sure they have the right experts around them. And I think the reality of One Wealth is, is that we have a lot of good people working in a lot of different platforms, different types of structures, but that they can bring a lot to the clients. So first and foremost, culture and asking yourself sort of what you'd like to be and what do our clients want us to be? I think the regulatory aspect is absolutely manageable and there's a lot of ways to do that. And I think with technology, that's that's always one of the hardest parts, I think, in our industry. We see really great advances in pieces of technology, but we don't see the still the progression we want, particularly in the bank trust space. Uh, we don't see the progression we want in quality of technology, kind of meeting the things that our clients are asking. So that's sort of how I viewed our journey. And I think each one needs <clears throat> its own roadmap, but it also needs its own sort of cultural check. I couldn't agree more. And, and, and culture is the driver of everything, right? Um, because culture significantly affects how well teammates are working with each other cross-departmentally, yes. right? If, you're, yeah. if your culture is too siloed, it's never going to work. Right, uh, right. On the other hand, if, you're, if your co culture is more of a, you know, kind of one wealth, one purpose, we're all in this to serve as many client needs as possible. Let's work as a team, different story. And that's what we're all striving for. Um, so... So maybe, Rooms, you can give us your perspective on that. And, and I'll throw one more question in there for you guys to think about as we're having this discussion. And it's, Rebecca, based on what you said about the technology on the trust side, I hear that over and over again, that that just has not caught up with some of the other technology. Why is that? I have no idea, <laughs> but there has to be a reason. So I, I'll just throw that out there. But, Rooms, let me, let me let you uh, chime in here. Uh, thanks, Scott. And I agree with everything Rebecca said. And I also agree that culture and looking at it from the client's viewpoint are the two most important factors. All of them are important, but those are, are, are two of the driving ones. Um, we actually started our One Wealth journey uh, around 2010. So, and it's a journey and we've got a long way to go. We're not, I don't know where the end is, but uh, uh, at least we, we've started. And uh, so some of the things that we did when we first started is, and the company helped with some of this is uh, common leadership for private banking, trust, and and brokerage. Prior to that, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, there was different leaderships, which creates silos, which creates different uh, uh, people with different perspectives and different goals. So uh, uh, fortunately, I was given the opportunity to to lead our private banking, wealth, and uh, brokerage and trust initiative. So that that was uh so having the leadership aligned was important. So then we started talking about a vision, which vision is part of culture and, and what we wanted to be and develop some guiding principles around what that would look like. And what our guiding principles look like today are completely different from what they were in 2010 because we've we've learned a lot. And getting our people to understand our vision 
and and aligned with that was also challenging. Uh, however, uh, uh, 13 years later, I guess, uh, we made a lot of progress and we can look back uh, at specific milestones where uh, we, we, we made progress and, and how that happened. Examples are simple. I mean, uh, co-locating people, uh, putting them in common offices, uh, uh, requiring pre-call plans where they're actually talking and strategizing how they're going to work with the client. Uh, situations where we lose business. We learn more when we lose business than when we gain business. I, a couple of, uh, I'll give you one example, advisors who were losing assets. And when they talked to their clients, uh, they found out that their clients were doing estate planning and moving assets to trust. And they were saying, well, we can do that. And the clients are saying, well, you never told me. Well, why didn't they tell them? It's because they would have lost assets. They would have lost compensation. Oh, yeah, they would have had to bring in teammates and all that kind of stuff. So they started learning, you know what, this is going to continue to happen as baby boomers age and I better get with the program. So they uh, they started thinking, OK, I may make less money if I bring in my partners, but the pie gets bigger and maybe I won't make less money. And they're now seeing that they're also doing bigger deals and bigger transactions. And so how to work in teams all plays into that as well. So, again, a journey. Those are some examples of that's one example of of uh, of how uh, we've progressed it, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah, no, it's interesting what happens if you, when you start working as a team, you know, at, at first you there's that fear, like you said, you're going to lose money because you're sending it off to somebody else. But as the client starts realizing how they how much they can do with your institution, especially with the teammates in your institution, they bring more and more assets to you. So in the big picture, you're actually making more money, right? Not only the institution, but even the advisor, because you guys become the trusted advisor, and that's when the magic starts happening, right? So, so that's cool. So, you, you mentioned there's a, there was a, a lot of really good stuff you just mentioned. One of the things that resonated with me is, is vision, but the challenge with vision is it has to be communicated effectively and over and over and over again. It has to be a drumbeat, right? So, how did you do that? I mean, do you actually have a vision statement, and how did you communicate it enough so it started taking hold? Our, our, yes. So uh, the, uh, the vision is we want to make this a great place for advisors to work. So in order for this to be a great place for advisors to work, uh, leadership has to be aligned. Compensations plans have to have to work. It doesn't mean they're going to make the most. It's the place where you're going to make the most money. It's going to be the, the best place to work. So as Rebecca mentioned, the culture has to be uh, advise, and when I say advisors, I'm talking about trust officers, bankers, everybody. Uh, uh, it's got to be um, a culture where they have some entrepreneurship and some ownership. So we we uh, we talk a lot about owning your business, developing your personal business plan, being strategic, and uh, and not always tactical. And they struggle with that because they grow up servicing clients and they measure the success by by the next sale. And when you ask them to be strategic they struggle. And so that's a muscle they have to build over time. And, and we help them with that as well. So our practice management programs are all built around thinking strategically about your business, being entrepreneurial within uh, the bank's culture and, and doing that. So those are, those are some examples. Uh, but we, and, and, and you made the comment, it takes time. Well, we've been doing it for 13 years. And so continuity of people, uh, if you, if you have constant turnover, that's a problem. If you have constant leadership changes, that's a problem. So uh, we've been able to, 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 to stay the course. So those are some of the examples that I'd, I'd share, Scott. So just another quick follow-up question. And then Rebecca, I, I, I know you have some thoughts too you want to contribute again. So Romes, the vision that, that you described is what I'll call an internal vision, right? Because it's not a client-centric vision. It's more right. a, an employee-centric vision. 
in concert with that, did you also have a a client centric vision? Like this is the way we want to work with our clients, or the way we want our clients to see our organization? Was that part of the message? Our company has a client vision, and it's very well aligned with what we're talking about here. So we don't have our own. We we leverage the clients. The, I'm sorry, the corporation's vision for how we're going to serve our clients. And a lot of it is around advice. That fits perfectly with what we're doing. If the the corporate vision is aligned with the wealth vision, that's perfect. That's exactly what you want. So you just beat that drum, right? Because it makes right. sense in the whole. So I, I get it. Rebecca, thoughts? It, so we actually rolled out a wealth management vision statement that is something that also tailors to clients. And it's a team, a plan, and a customized client experience rooted in trust in the organization, trust in the advisor, and trust in us taking your best interest at heart. And that's something that when we go back to every single client, it doesn't matter where they are on the wealth spectrum, the team might change, the plan, how that plan is delivered, the level of sophistication, who delivers it may change. And that customized experience is we are also flexible enough that as your life changes, we're ensuring that we are bringing the right people to you. So in a banking organization, we don't ever see a time that you shouldn't at least have a team of someone in banking that goes along with your advisor. And that can run the whole spectrum. And then that team continues to change as you are a business owner who needs succession planning. If you're aging and you need trust, but we have a real commitment to that. And it's something we present the full suite of services to clients up front with the understanding you may never need all of these, but we're always going to revisit. So if your life changes, you know what we do and you know we can help you. And it helps us also avoid those situations where someone goes somewhere else and does something you could have done for them and you find out when the assets are leaving. It's a lot of what Rome said. Uh, we don't want to be in that spot. So this vision also plays into how we visually present ourselves to clients. That was perfect. I wish we were recording this. Uh, wait, we are. <laughs> um, I love that. That was really good. Chris, you're, I see you there. I know you have thoughts because we've talked about this, right? And I know LPL is, has really been working on this whole one wealth thing. So let me, let me get your input now that you've, now that you've heard from, uh, from Rebecca and Rome's. Yeah, not a topic I'm passionate about at all, right, Scott? I think it's, um, you know, the, the first and foremost, it's just so cool to be here today with everybody. I mean, Rome's and Rebecca are both industry leaders in this particular concept. They've both been wonderful in just kind of educating me and helping me understand their journeys. Um, so that that's just been a ton of fun. And listening to their, their journey here today has been a blast. I think a couple things from my perspective. Yes, we are on a journey um, in terms of developing a platform. But I think this conversation really starts and almost begins and ends with what's your operating model. And so there were a couple of things I heard earlier um, that really define advisor experience and client experience. Rebecca, you termed it really well, culture, right? Culture matters. And then Rome's, you said, hey, there's, we want to be a great place for advisors to work. Those two things, I think that nails it. And so if you step back a little bit, one wealth is clearly a logical next step in our journey to serve clients more, right? So from my experience, clients don't have a preference for the regulatory environment within which they're served, right? The OCC, the SEC, we can debate the merits of those, but that's not a client experience item. And if you think about kind of the trust world has evolved heavily from 
almost a fiduciary experience into kind of investment management or agency accounts. And the broker-dealer world has evolved from this transactional brokerage environment to advisory. It's a convergence of fee-based advice. Really, we're kind of doing a lot of the same things in both worlds. Um, And historically, we thought of client needs in terms of wealth level or kind of assets under management that they control. I think increasingly what's starting to happen is hey, not should I be on the trust platform or the brokerage platform, but what are my needs? What are the client needs? And less around kind of that asset or wealth level, but more around their profile. So um, again, you know, Rebecca and I have talked a lot about this, but segments such as kind of the business owner, the executive, next gen, serving them in the way they want to be served versus maybe the solutions or the silos that we have. And then I think last but not least, you know, one of the, the big ones that's out there that I know we'll talk about kind of, over time is compensation models can be aligned, right? We can figure that out. Um, That's not particularly difficult over time. I think it's more kind of the culture and uh, advisor experience elements. I agree with you. I I think compensation models not only can be aligned, but are starting to be aligned because we're seeing the evolution towards salary plus bonus, right? I mean, that, that, that is a trend. It's a slow trend, but is a, it is a trend. And that makes it easier to align compensation once that happens, right? I, and there's a lot of tricky stuff still. And we'll talk a little bit more about compensation, uh, but I want to pass it to Bob because I know there's a question. And I'll, I'll, make one, I'll make one last comment. All this stuff that we're talking about relates to, you know, serving the client as, as best as possible, w- which what does that mean? It, it means understanding their needs and servicing as many of their needs as possible, right? That is very dependent on a really good discovery process and not a one and done discovery, ongoing discovery, discovery across many touch points of the organization. So you really understand the comprehensiveness of the needs of your clients, right? So that's a subject probably for another day, but I'll just throw that out there as something that's critically important that I think most organizations don't focus enough on, and that is nailing the discovery process because that's the only way you're going to understand all the needs of your clients. So, but Bob, let me pass it to you for the next question that I know you have lined up. Sure, sure. Well, you know, in that last question, we did touch on the client side of the business and looking at it from the client's perspective, because it is really all about the client. The client really doesn't care who runs what in the bank. They really, that's that's not their concern. They really don't care about it. Their journey starts in different places all the time. You have some clients that bring wealth to the table, and that's you have some clients that acquire wealth over, over time. So let's think about this from the client's perspective. And if you're a client on a wealth journey with a financial institution and become wealthy all, along the way, do you want to be pushed from place to place? No. How should a financial institution optimize the one wealth client experience? Roms, why don't we start with you? What are the... The, the what's the process? What's the service levels? What's, what's the way to go about this? Because customers are coming in all over the map. There are a lot of things rushing through my mind. Uh, you know, the, the main thing I think about is uh, you're right. Clients don't want to be pushed, but they do want to be introduced to the right people. I think Rebecca made a comment along that. You, you bring in the right people and you uh, educate your, your teams on who, who to bring in and what to bring in. And if they're working as teams and, thinking about the best interests of the clients, they'll they'll know when to do that. So a couple of things, I'll just share some of the things that we do to sort of uh, drive that. First of all, uh, we uh, very much believe in financial planning. We got our financial planning program was established in 1999. We deliver it uh, through uh, CFPs that don't actually sell. They only advise the clients. And we tell the clients that on the front end so that they know the client, that the planner 
is an advocate for them and not somebody that's going to try to push products and the planners then explain that, look, uh, we can then, we're going to have recommendations and you'll need to uh, act on these recommendations. And we got people that can help you um, act on that. So I think leading with planning uh, addresses a lot of the issues you've talked about because it's a natural way for the planner to, to lay out recommendations and then bring in the proper teammates to help implement the plan. So uh, I'll, well, that's one uh, we've done some other things too. We uh, we determine or we understand that the that most of our clients come through the, uh, the for a banking product, right? We um, and so we've spent a lot of time educating our private bankers on how to become one wealth. Uh, if you go back to when we started this journey, our private bankers were lenders, but we and we called them lenders. They basically loan money and open accounts and. And so we had to really change your thinking about, okay, so how do you transition from that to a a full balance sheet advice? Or if you look at uh, the, um, the value stack or the, or or where clients really need to be, it's not about managing money or lending money. uh, It's about uh, helping them achieve their goals. So we encourage our private bankers to get licensed. We encourage them to get their CFP designations. And we have uh, practice management classes where we teach them, how to conduct discovery, as Scott mentioned. We teach them how to uh, understand the plan. We teach them how to um, recommend the plan. And so they become really more almost psychologists than bankers and wealth advisors than bankers. And again, we're not there yet, but we're getting better and better. And uh, and so that helps the, the One Wealth process as well. And then the last thing I'll mention is as the more the, you do this, the more people understand their role. Uh, uh, our advisors will understand their role, who's playing what position, and when to play that position. So they get really tactical in terms of when meeting with the clients. The planner always sits on the side with the clients as their advocate, and then the others position themselves accordingly. So they start thinking more strategically about how to how to deliver the plan, how to execute the plan, and how to follow up on recommendations. So I hope all that makes sense. Uh, but those are some examples of of how we try to uh, implement this uh, one wealth paradigm. Well, you know, many people are listening to what you're saying and saying 1999. You started financial planning in 1999, and, saying, and it's it's true. I remember hearing this back. I thought it was actually earlier than that, but I know you guys have been doing a Amazing job. Would you consider financial planning kind of your onboarding process for these clients that are coming from different types of backgrounds and different levels of wealth? Uh, I don't really think about it that way. But as I do, uh, yes, because again, and it's a customized onboarding process, right? Because you, you go through the plan, you've got usually six to a dozen recommendations and you talk to the client, okay, which is most important to you? And let's start knocking them out. And uh, And so as you as you do that, you're you're going deeper with your client. You're learning more about your client. They're, uh, you're introducing more of your team to the client. And uh, yeah, so the, the short answer is uh, that's a good, great way to phrase it. And is there a typical demographic? A demographic? Yeah. yeah uh, well, nah, we, we focus on four different things, and some of them have been mentioned. We focus on professionals. We focus on business owners. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about women investors and generational wealth transfer. So those are sort of like where we tell our people to to fish. Uh, but our segmentation uh, is is sort of where you're going is more guidelines than rules. Uh, and I understand bigger the bigger the organization, the more segmentation has to be is maybe required. I don't know, but uh, 
uh, we use it more as guidelines for our people. Great, great. Uh, so, Rebecca, let's let me ask the question a little differently. What's your onboarding process? Since we have wealth clients from all over the place, how do you guys deal, sure, deal with that? One of the things that we say is we're also very planning centric, haven't been at it quite as long as Rome's, but more since 2013. And we really started with discovery. So I would say our onboarding process is really thorough discovery. We just came out of a two-day conference for all of our client-facing people, and the entire conference is focused on discovery. Um, I think, as we know, the industry is changing. The days of, even in managed money, if you're only talking about the portfolio, you're really not continuously bringing value to your clients. So our onboarding is that thorough discovery, and we want clients who are willing to engage with us that way. Uh, We're not looking just to be a provider of like a single solution. And then that discovery can lead into different types of planning, depending on the client. It could be everything from an advanced comprehensive plan to planning that meets uh, different goals and addresses different things for that client. So very thorough discovery is part of our client onboarding process. Like we said, the, some of the basic block and tackle discipline that Rome's mentioned, pre-call, post-call, who should be with this client in the first meeting? How do we make sure we're bringing value? Who should be with the client over time? So not just a robust onboarding, but ongoing client management, I think is even more important. I think a lot of us are great. When someone is new, the relationship is new, there's a lot to do. But that plan gives us the opportunity on a regular basis to go back and say, is there anything that's changed? Let's just update things. So we have two buckets. We have when you first join us, and that's great. But then we have the ongoing management uh, process as well. And that's where, kind of to that previous question, does the client want to be moved around? We've probably been in organizations where there are these lines and at that line, someone moves on and especially bigger clients do not usually like that. What we do is we use this ongoing process rather to say, has something changed in this client situation that requires a bigger team? And as long as you are bringing that team in and you are meeting the client's needs, we are not ever going to take it away from an advisor who has maybe built that relationship over 10 or 15 years. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And what we're really talking about now is really financial wellness. And it's the continuing change in how their needs change from growing to also growing and protecting. So I'm wondering, and needs on the protection side are always changing. So I'm wondering, Does client education and financial wellness come into the picture as well? Absolutely. And that's where we say is we're not investment advisors. We are client advisors. We are life advisors. Protection comes along the way. Protection from your property, your liability that's out there, as well as the value of your life and your ability to work. And we genuinely believe if we're not addressing that, we're really not actually doing the best for our client. So it it is all aspects. It is your estate. And regardless of size, do you have it in order? Um, Basic things, do you have a guardian for your children? Advanced things, have you taken advantage of this very large lifetime exemption we have right now? So it is life planning. And I think that's where we bring value. And then we're very fortunate. We have our whole banking side and they're not lenders anymore. They are relationship people as well. Because there are points in your life you need to borrow, and there are points in your life that you need to save. 
Um, and I think that that's the benefit of, of financial, looking at a client from a financial wellness standpoint. Absolutely. And it is more life coaching. And I know Chris was nodding when you said financial wellness. So Chris, you know, how do you guys tackle this from an LPL perspective? It's well said. And the, the concept, I mean, so I think it was really well covered, but the concept that strikes home with me is really that discovery. So understanding client needs, maybe where I'll take that one is um, when you think about just different advisor personas, not exclusively true, but generally true, they kind of fall into one of two camps. They're either really strong technically, they understand concepts, solutions, ability to solve problems, and or they have an intense set of relationship skills. And I think that's what we're talking about here a lot as it relates to One Wealth is taking those two personas, bringing them together and creating an equation where one plus one equals more than two. Um, you know, that being said, I do think there is merit to advisor focus on specific client profiles, right? Just relative to supporting and sourcing clients. So much of the ability to sort of, again, is understanding needs. And so when you spend all of your time with an affluent client base or an ultra high net worth client base, not only do you develop a network, but you understand really what the different needs are as it relates to that. I kind of think about just our service um, here at LPL. We evolved our model uh, a few years ago to really kind of serve organizations on the basis of the bank's size as opposed to the program size or number of advisors that they support. And again, I think that's, you know, when you think about a wealth business, it exists inside of the broader construct of a bank, right? The regulators live largely at the parent company level. And so that was a big evolution for us. I think the same is true for clients. They want to work with teams that support families that kind of face similar issues to their own. But um, generally, I think, you know, discovery and advisor personas is what this is all about. And you certainly have to do your discovery from two perspectives. You're doing your discovery with potential clients and then their discovery for the for the next layer down. So when you're out there positioning yourself as a provider of these services, what are you looking for from partnership? Yeah, it's really a disciplined process, right? So it's the ability to articulate to the advisor and then to the client what we're running through. It's not a lot more complex than that. You can have a lot of different operating models and a lot of different structures, but it's adherence to a process. Absolutely. Okay, I think we'll pivot now and go back to Scott for the next question. Well, I, I want to revisit something that came up later, but let me just say, I love this whole focus on discovery, Rebecca, that you mentioned um, and not, not moving a client around in the organization as they get wealthier, right? That, that has been the default model in our space and it's a, it's a broken model, right? So the fact that, that you're, you just build on the team as the needs grow, I think is really cool. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that, but Rome's, I'd like to go back to you for, for, uh, this question because you brought up compensation and I touched on it a little bit. Uh, but that's a tricky one, right? Because, I mean, if you look at typical compensation in our channel, I mean, you have, you know, comp in the in the trust department that's different than comp in the investments department, that's different than comp in private banking. How do you merge all those together? And then, you know, when you make, you know, if an advisor makes a referral to a loan officer, what's that worth? How do you comp for that? Or do you? Is it team-based compensation? So I don't know that every anybody has perfectly figured it out, but there's some good ideas out there. And and you know, you guys, I'd like to get your thoughts on it, Romes, if you can, if you can kick us off with that question. Glad to. Uh, I don't. We don't have a solution. The elephant in the room is 
advisors, our advisors are on grids and they're a hundred percent variable. They like that. The, the institution that tries to change that is probably going to have a lot of uh, uh, advisors leaving uh, to go other places because that's just the nature of the advisors, in my opinion. So we've not been able to figure that one out. However, we've sort of, uh, not sort of, we've addressed it around the edges. So we've done things like I mentioned earlier, our private bankers, we encourage them to get licensed. So, for example, if I'm a private banker, I bring in an advisor and we get a new uh, piece of business because they're licensed, they can share in the first year's revenue. And the advisor's willing to do that because they're going to have a client for eight to 10 to 15 years. So it's a marketing expense for them to um, to bring in that private banker. We've encouraged some of our trust officers to get licensed for the same reason. Not as much success there, but a lot of success on the private banking side. Um, we, um, we've we had the, the situations that I mentioned earlier where uh, a advisor has a client that needs trust. Well, now uh, we've set up a, a a revenue share where they get a, a smaller payout, uh, but the uh, account does move to the trust platform. They stay on the account and work with the trust officer for a smaller payout, better than the account going somewhere else. And now the biggest uh, 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 the advisors uh, are our biggest referral source for trust. Because they're seeing as their clients age that seventy uh, percent of something is better than uh, zero of of nothing, right? So uh, we've done that as well. So there's some things we've done around the edges. We do not, uh, we can get comfortable from a regulatory perspective paying our advisors to refer back to the bank. We expect them to do it, and we track it, uh, and we talk about it, but we don't pay, we don't, we don't compensate them for it. We figure that, uh, and they're fine with that. They understand. Interesting uh, dynamic, I think, that exists out there relative to what you call the elephant in the room, and that's 100% variable comp that our current stock of advisors like, right? We know that it's been very difficult to recruit advisors, and so not only are we starting to home grow advisors in the channel, but we're, I think, being a bit more ambitious about recruiting newbies, right, and training them, new college grads, et cetera, et cetera. And what I've noticed, I think, it's it's not based on any uh, uh, rigorous research, but it seems like the new crop of advisors, what I'll call the next-gen advisors, uh, are more interested in a salary-plus structure, at least to start with, than 100% variable comp, right? So so maybe it's an evolution, um, and as we have a you know a, the our older advisors retire that's the way this is this this comp model will evolve it'll start becoming more salary plus i don't know but that seems to me from what i see and hear and i have a daughter that's just starting on a track to become a financial advisor she just graduated this year she's like you yeah, know give me give me a stable base for now anyway right maybe maybe that's gonna have an effect i don't know but rebecca i'd love your thoughts on it no, I, I completely agree. And much like culture, compensation is a construct we have created. We've created it in the industry. We've created these bifurcations and who does what and where a client belongs. And I think it's another one that has to evolve. Uh, what I hear when we talk about One Wealth is so often the, co- the conversation immediately goes to compensation and everybody will quit and all of that. And I think we could be a lot more creative uh, how you continue to ensure that maybe one group of people 
will be weaned off of something, or maybe there's grandfathering. There are a lot of ways to do this, but I think it doesn't mean that we continue to perpetuate because if we think of the change in the industry, transactional business lent itself very nicely to I get paid on everything I do because it's very quick. We have moved everybody to advisory. When you sell an advisory account, first you get the assets, then you start investing. You might dollar cost average in, that fee might not come on. And in some ways, compensation plans almost hurt you for doing advisory business, at least early on. And the other thing we've seen, and it's not just with younger people, but I also think we do have a lack of diversity in our industry as well. It's well-documented. Um, we also find there are a lot of studies that show women um, and certain groups prefer a more stable base, a base and a bonus type of program. And so I think that we're actually as an industry, maybe by holding to this compensation model, uh, because we don't have the same diversity problems when we get into trustee, into advanced financial planning, uh, into wealth advisors who are in that upper space and have a salary. So I, I think we have to also challenge ourselves to say, if we need to grow this industry and we know wealth is becoming older and it is becoming more female, we have to think maybe why is it that people who are really good at this haven't come into this part of the industry? So I, I just challenge us that we created the construct and beauty of creating it means you can change it. It's not regulatory. It's just it's just a decision we made. Wow. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I, I, I can see about five podcasts with this discussion. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you're, you've just nailed uh, some some very interesting subjects. Um, so, and and I agree with a lot of a lot of your perspective, Chris. You're nodding your head and smiling. So let me give you a shot at the same question. Yeah, just acknowledging most of it. I think it's important to just kind of keep in mind that there's real change management involved in shifting businesses that are you know currently operating successfully to the next paradigm, right? I think that's important. Maybe the one angle that um, hasn't been talked about as much is we live in resource constrained organizations that operate multiple businesses. And those multiple businesses aren't always wealth. And wealth, in a lot of occasions, is actually one of the smaller pieces of the pie. And so thinking through compensation and teaming as it relates to commercial bankers, mortgage bankers, and retail is just as relevant. A lot of the referral flow or the teaming that exists with those organizations is driven by the compensation in the wealth business and or the opportunity to participate. And so I think that's one thing we've seen organizations over time spend a lot more time on. I am seeing a lot more of our clients um, inquire about and quite frankly execute against paying advisors for loans, deposits, other adjacent fees, various models, whether it's balance-driven or kind of revenue-driven, but starting to align across the broader bank is, a, is another trend that we're seeing. And I know we can we can go on forever with compensation, but we have a lot of other ground we, we want to cover. So uh, appreciate your your thoughts and, and um, insights on that. And more to come, I'm sure we'll, we'll continue this discussion in one way or another. But let me pass it back to Bob um because the other critical thing here is technology right we touched on that already so bob i know you have a technology question sure and and actually um rebecca queued it up earlier um in the uh, in the podcast by her opening statement saying there's three areas of focus for one wealth culture regulatory and technology and clearly an integral part of the client experience is tech and and it's a significant spend to keep up with tech um and, and that it comes with a lot of potential potholes or maybe even landmines. 
So, you know, to keep investment, trust, and banking all together, Chris, I know you guys do have a significant tech spend. So how do you see these challenges ultimately resolving themselves? And what's your whole perspective with technology at LPL? Yeah, it's a good question, Bob. I and appreciate you asking it. It's a it's a pretty broad one. And I think the the larger concept is what do you want to be great at, right? Really, where do you want to differentiate? And generally what we hear from our clients is the opportunity to add value is really at that client experience and then secondarily at that advisor experience level. And then really everything else just should work. Um, those behind the scenes elements lend themselves towards scale. Right. You see kind of a lot of merger and acquisition activity, not just in the tech space, but broadly across our space. And there's really kind of two approaches to technology. One is this um, kind of pull together a stack of vendors and try to get alignment and get the best in breed across organizations or really take an organization. LPL fits this category as do a lot of others where there's a singular ownership or kind of a vertically integrated model. We, we think that wins over time. It really allows a specific organization, one, to monetize at all levels of the stack, but to control the experiences. So I think that being said, there are various providers in this space that clearly realize now is the time to invest in one wealth or a unified wealth model, given the convergence, as we talked about earlier, on the fee-based uh, businesses on both sides of the aisle. I think the first step just clearly is not tech. It's the operating model. That's what matters. How do we get culture? How do we get the people to operate? Which clients do you want to serve? How does that player into, play into the broader financial institution strategy? And how and whom with do you want to serve them? I think a platform is simply a tool to execute the strategy, much like the trend of broker-dealer outsourcing, if you will. I always suggest that firms explore if that's the right operating model first and then kind of who with or what partner but we're definitely really focused on the client experience and client driving um, optimization there today. Well, absolutely. And the client experience gets more and more difficult as technology improves because there's the demands from clients are, what do you mean you can't give me this? You know, so clients, you know, expectations keep going higher and higher. I mean, I know I expect my phone to do everything for me and I expect my wealth manager to do everything for me. So how do you keep up with that, Chris? I mean, there's got to be a constant pressure to be able to just keep going. Yeah, I think it's the right question. And I think when you that's why when you align with a partner, it really has to be that it's a journey, right? It's one that you've got to be able to have open and authentic dialogue. We certainly are not a perfect firm. Uh, we've made a lot of missteps have done a lot of great things, but I think it's it's really being client centric and listening to the firms that you support and constantly seeking that feedback. So that to me, that's the way as a partner, you you really have to win in this space. All right. And let, let me put Rebecca on the spot. She works with you. So, Rebecca, the, the tech, the tech side of this business has got to be a challenge. You've been doing it since, I think, 2013. <laughs> tech demands of clients and organizations like yours have obviously changed. Absolutely. And especially when you have <clears throat> clients who are on your higher end platform, the larger accounts, but who are not necessarily having the same experience. And clients have come to expect that fidelity online experience and uh, all of an app and things at their fingertips. And then if you marry that up with being in an institution, think about the technology a banking institution has to have. And tech, realistically, wealth management is not going to 
get the lion's share of those dollars. So for us, what we found is working with outside partners uh, makes a, a huge difference. What I do like about what LPL is trying to do is we're trying to pull together the front end technology experience for our clients. And then subsequently, there will be the same thing that brings it together for our advisors, our trust officers and everyone else. Because like we said, they don't know the difference and we're doing a great job being a team on the front. And then two different platforms running in the back doesn't, doesn't really continue to support kind of the message you're giving. So I think you have to have a partner if you're in the regional bank space in particular or smaller. And I think there's a lot of focus on this. Um, and particularly, I think Scott asked earlier, you know, why have the trust systems not kept up? And, and I think Chris hit on it beautifully. They were built to be principal and income accounting systems that you worked with beneficiaries and they probably never came into. As we've grown the investment management agency business, as we've added separate account managers, the systems have just had to keep up while also being able to account for all of these changes. So it's it's a huge undertaking, but it's something our clients need and our clients ask for. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Let me let me ask Rums. I mean, you're Mr. 1999 financial planning, right? I mean, seriously, talk about tech in 1999. There was no high anything. So, you know, so how have you been tackling it from a first horizon? Back then, I think you were called first Tennessee, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you remember you remember correctly. Uh, good memory. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's I'll, I'll tackle it from a different perspective, because if you think about uh, you can call it a challenge, I'll call it an opportunity. Uh, if you think about our business, fees uh, are being compressed because of competition, right? There's a lot of competition and clients are able to shop around. So you've got that. Um, our people costs are going up, our tech costs are going up, and our compliance costs are going up. So with that's a, that's an opportunity. So what you've got to do is be just really be smart about where you spend your money, where you prioritize, and uh, and really be laser focused on on what you're going to do. From a technology perspective, it's interesting because you can look at it the same way and say, okay, do we need the best of breed tech or do we need uh, just good enough or or what is it we need? Because our value proposition and uh, is uh, people and advice. So that's got to be number one, and you've got to have great people and, and advice. You also need to have uh, tech because clients want to do business when and how they they choose, and that requires technology. So you put that all together, and it's a it's an interesting uh, challenge that that uh, and put on top of that, Bob, and you know this, and uh, Scott is you all know this. So a lot of the advisors aren't tech savvy, so you could buy the best technology and you you put it out there, and how much of it gets utilized. So I don't have an answer, but you've got to balance all that. But uh, our our tech spend is going to increase. We know that, and we're going to have to have more and more. Uh, tools. I think Chris described it well. You've got different options, whether you uh, bring it all together or you let somebody else do it for you. Um, uh, it's it's a challenge and opportunity. I don't know that uh, we've got I've got the best answer, but those are those are what come to mind to me. And those are the things that we have to struggle with or not struggle, the child, the opportunities we have. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And you're right about the financial advisors and the use of technology, because you've got financial advisors that are just coming into the industry and those that have been around and want to use a marble composition notebook to do their notes and never use Money Guide Pro or eMoney or whatever the technology stack has in store for them. All right. Well, then on that, we're going to pass it to Scott for I think which is our last question. 
Yeah, and then we'll do a fun question, a fun quick question, or, or typical lightning round question. But the the last question I have for you guys is, um, you know, so we have a lot of listeners to these podcasts, and the majority of them uh, have probably not made too much progress in this one wealth journey, right? Because there are a lot of smaller organizations uh, out there that have a difficult time with this, right? So. From an advice standpoint, what would and, and Rebecca, maybe maybe you can start us off here. What what advice would you have for an institution that wants to start going down this path, but maybe hasn't yet? What are the first incremental steps they should think about so they can get going in the right direction? You know, I, I'd put it really sort of three steps. I think the first one is to step back and assess where you are. Uh, ask yourself what you like. What are the positive elements of your structure? Because no structure has all bad or all good. So what are the things? Are there the ways people work together or their client experience? What are the things you like and you wouldn't want to be different? And then flip it and say, what are the things that don't work well? Do we have inviting? Do clients not end up where we want? So I think assessing where you are and determine what are the pieces you'd like to eliminate. Um, then I think the next thing is ask yourself what a, a perfect future would look like. I think we get really constrained by where we are today. And there's a really big difference between incremental change and sort of revolutionary thinking. And so I think just taking the constraints away and saying, what would good look like? What would great look like? And then from there, you take some tactical steps. I think as Rome said, we can't go pull commission out of the industry altogether. It It kind of blows it up. But what you can say are what are the things I would like to change incrementally and start doing that. And it's things like unifying your leadership. That makes a huge, huge difference because the leaders then drive what happens. Sharing goals, sharing financial incentives, sharing success. I think get your teams encouraged that it's about building something better than we have now. And then talk about the realignments. How do we then make incremental change with one end vision and then always be willing to change where that vision's going based on kind of where the market is? Uh, we have been doing this since 2013 and, and we got to really kind of start over. So we were very lucky. We got to put a lot of pieces in place and we don't have a lot of history to undo. But I have also seen places where they are undoing that. And we've had to undo some of that. And when you have people focused on a future, they become successful and then success breeds success. So that would be yeah. my suggestion. That's cool. I mean, I, I think just to summarize what you said, the first thing you said is like, look at your operating model, right? What's working, right. what's not working and how do you change your operating model? And then back up and look at your vision. So where do you want to be when you grow up and how do you start making the, the the incremental steps towards that right um so that's i mean big picture um great great advice right so 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 let me let me go to chris next and then Rome's would like to hear from you because because the operating model was referred to and and chris you keep on referring to the operating model which is a which is a really good way to think about how you're running your business right and a lot of people don't necessarily think of it from the perspective of the operating model but it is the right way to speak of, of it right so let me get your thoughts relative to this question in that regard. Yeah, I think, again, this doesn't have to be a boil the ocean conversation. There, there definitely are two things that Rebecca said that I think um, really are relevant. Leadership matters, 
right? That's a big place to start unification of that, but then also finding the right folks that you want on the bus. And then the other thing that she mentioned is don't be constrained where, where you are. I think the first place to start here from an operating model perspective is what do you want to be great at in defining client journeys? So what are the segments you want to just serve and how? But this, how does this also correlate to the typical client profile of a financial institution? For example, if you've got a host of middle market clients, think about how you serve those middle market clients versus going to try to find ways to serve other segments. I think another important element is what this is not. So it's not a tech or a platform conversation. Those are enablers, right? We oftentimes have firms that'll come to us looking for a change. And I think the first conversation we want to have with them is, is it the vendor or the partner that you're with today that's broken or are there things in your model that you can change? And while we would love every firm to be served by LPL, I think you really got to define those first elements first. Um, and then I think in my opinion, it's also about defining the solutions and services you want to place in each segment. So define a primary relationship need and then support the heck out of them with resources. And then the rest of it will really present itself to you. So I think about your specific issues with compensation, regulatory silos, products. They're going to expose themselves as you focus on delivering exceptional client experiences because your clients and your advisors are going to come to you and say, hey, this is a challenge. So, again, I think just the, the first thing first, I would say, is focus on those client journeys. Good advice. I'm not going <laughs> to not going to push back on any of that. I, I, I love it. Uh, Rome's thoughts. Yeah, I think uh, the first uh, step is to really think about what you want to be uh, as a as an organization. Uh, you know, if uh, uh, here's what we've learned is before the journey, we had a lot of clients and we were shallow. We went shallow with them. Now we have fewer clients, but we go deeper with them. So if that's what you're and a, a good example of that is uh, we used to celebrate hundred thousand dollar wins, and those were great. Now we celebrate. 5, 10, 15, $20 million wins. So we're going deeper with, with the right clients, we feel. And so think about it. And maybe that's not what you, where you want to be. If you want to be a lot of clients and, and, and shallow with them, that, that's, a, that's a fine strategy. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is it's easier to recruit people to this platform than it used to be. Because when we talk, you, when you're recruiting, you, gotta, you have to have a story. And I think we've got a story now that we can tell about how we how we do things, how we meet the client needs, and and it it's, and you've got to inspire people to want to come to your organization. So, doing this makes it, in my opinion, easier to recruit. And um, uh, and it's interesting. We have a lot of our folks that now tell us, you know, I'm having lots of fun because I'm getting to know my clients. My clients, um, I know all about them. I know about their families. Um, I can help them. I can advise them. Versus uh, before I was doing transactions. So it, it really brings a human element to it that that's important. So I think those are some of the benefits. Um, if you're going to do this, you got to be committed. It's like uh, and and it's a journey. So there's no quick fix way to lose weight. You got to do it. You got to stick with it, and 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 you stay committed. And uh, you're going to learn, uh, and you've got to be flexible too, uh, because things are going to change, and 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 thing ha uh, stuff happens. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is, and I think this is uh, very important, as you're going through this journey, talk to your frontline people. Uh, they know a lot. They can help you a lot. We've, we've set up advisor councils. Uh, we get feedback from them. They are very instrumental in helping us uh, guide our journey, guide us through this journey. And if you involve them, they get more committed to the cause 
and they feel engaged. So uh, those are my thoughts and comments, Scott. You know, again, summation, it, it, it's a journey. What we're talking about is changing a culture that never happens overnight, right? It's, it's, it is a long but rewarding journey and you have to be patient with it. And, and you have to celebrate the incremental wins along the way, right? And have a vision for where you want to go. And there's one thing that I'll add to all this that, that wasn't mentioned yet, but implied. If there was one and only one metric that you should measure as a success metric towards the One Wealth journey, it should be wallet share, right? Because that will tell all. The more wallet share you have, the more you're, you are a trusted advisor, the more needs of your clients that you're servicing, and, and they're willing to give you their assets to manage if they trust you and, you, and and they know you can service as many of their needs as possible. So that's the best metric you could ever come up with, I think, to start this journey. If your objective is 100% wallet share, how do we do that as an organization? We have to gain trust. We have to understand our clients through discovery. We have to service as many of their needs as possible. That means we have to wa- work cross-departmentally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything flows from that one metric realistically. And there are no organizations that I know of that are really good at tracking wallet share yet, right? Uh, but it is totally doable. I know it is. The data is there because I see it, right? So that's that one one more tip that I'll add to that. That's a that's an in, important metric. All right. That said, let's wrap this up with a fun question, Bob. You want to ask the lightning round question? Not yet, but I first I want to listen to my <laughs> top five takeaways from this whole conversation. Because as, okay. as we're talking, I was right, you know, what are my top five things that I take away from this? And actually, one is determine what is working and not working as you're trying to look at building your wealth management plan. You know, what do you want to be? You know, define it, make a vision about it. Just, you know, describe it as much as you can and look at it from a unified leadership perspective. Communicate with the front lines. Another, engage with the right partner for your operating model, I think was a continuing theme throughout this conversation today. But most important, if you look at it from the client's perspective, you can't go wrong. The client's journey is what One Wealth is all about. Now we can go to the fun question. And we always have a lightning round question on our on our podcast. And today it's, what was the one concert you attended that you remember the least about? And we were going to go to ladies first on this one. So, Rebecca, do you have anything that you remember from that experience? Uh, I was invited to a cheap trick concert that was at the base of Deer Valley Ski Resort. And no one told me I had to hike up. So I did not wear appropriate shoes and probably not clothing to be at a ski resort in like January, soaking wet. So I remember one song, the one song everyone knows anyway. And then all I remember is being really cold, really wet, and then having to think I have to take a really steep hike back down to get out of here. I love Cheap Trick. I've I've seen Cheap Trick probably a half a dozen times. (laughs) Rome's. Bob, you know, I feel like this is a trick, uh, trick question because uh, you said le- remember the least about it. And if I said some, if I say something recent, people are going to think, man, he must have really been messed up to not remember <laughs> anything about this concert. So I'm going to go back to high school, and I went to a concert with my girlfriend. And it was a Peter Frampton concert, and I hated it. But the the one thing I do remember is a guy stood up in front of us, and she told him to sit down, and he was really big, and he and all his friends turned around, and I thought, uh oh. Here we go. So I thought I was going to get beat up at the time and uh, didn't enjoy the concert, didn't enjoy that experience. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
<laughs> Fritz. Yeah, I had similar sentiments to Rome. I, Rome's, I looked at this one and I said, oh, I don't know. I, I'd get myself in trouble here. Fortunately, <laughs> I have an out. But we did have, we had an amazing concert. Um, uh, Brian Adams at our, uh, our focus event, our big flagship event this year. That was probably the last concert. But I do remember that one. Rebecca knows this about me, stage of life. So I've got three boys under five. So concerts are kind of a different set of priorities. We um, we went up to see uh, Blippi in Greenville about a month or so ago. It's this uh, kind of like kids TV show, but they did a live performance. So um, check it out if you haven't seen it, by the way. Anyway, um, on our uh, our visit up there, and when we were there, my 18-month-old decided that he was going to throw a fit. So I ended up completely missing the show, kind of going in and out. But that's uh, that's my latest. <laughs> now, now Scott is the musician amongst the group here. He's been in a band. He's in a band. He plays at our events. So Scott, can't wait to ask you this question yeah. and find out. So I'm taking the bait, and I'll, and I'll admit right up front, my answer is going to be because I was so friggin' wasted. <laughs> But it was a long time ago. It was in 1976. It was, yes, at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey, where I lived at the time. And that stadium doesn't exist anymore. And they were the band back then, right? They were one of the most popular bands. And um, I was overserved. I remember Roundabout. That was the only song I remember for that whole concert. And recently, this blew me away. I went online and I did a search for, yes, Roosevelt Stadium, Jersey City. Because I couldn't remember the year it was. Well, I, I found out it was 1976. So it actually came up. The set list came up online, and a picture of the ticket stub was online. Guess how much I paid to see what, what was one of the biggest bands of the day back in 1976? $7.50. Wow. <laughs> Crazy, right? So, yeah, that was uh, the one I remember least about. I wish I was a little bit more coherent because uh, I'm sure it was a good show, but I wouldn't know. Bob, how about you? <laughs> Uh, I was told that I was at a Hootie and the Bluefish concert. I do remember <laughs> being told. at MSG. I was told this. I was also told that no doubt was the warm-up. That's all I got is that's what I was told. <laughs> I remember MSG. That's all. So it's kind of been the same bucket as you, Scott. Now you know I why I'm proud of my business partner. <laughs> <laughs> no, just well, well, we're going to go to concerts with you guys. That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that wraps it up, Scott does wrap it up. So uh, thank you all for what I thought was a very stimulating discussion and to be continued. Uh, really good stuff. So so um, Rebecca, Rome, Chris, much appreciated. And Chris, thanks again from uh, the standpoint of LPL support of, of this podcast. Thank you. And, and Bob, wrap up comments. Really, other than another thank, round of thank yous, the convergence of investments, trust, and private banking will be available everywhere. You can find podcasts and wherever you listen to your music under the Stathis Mattel Business Intelligence brand. So we will see you soon at another podcast in the future. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. Also, don't forget to check out our two other podcast series, Untangling FinTech and BISA Industry Trend Watch. Please subscribe to our podcast and join us again for future episodes.